This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is the third episode in a three-part series covering the crimes attributed to the Atlanta Ripper, a person or persons who targeted Black women in Atlanta, Georgia, for at least three years. Please listen to the first two episodes before completing the series. There is discussion of graphic violence in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. I venture to prophecy that you will again have trouble from the very same men who gave you trouble before. Jefferson Franklin Long, Georgian, and the first African-American elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, 1871. Last episode, we left off in the early months of 1912, with a number of suspects arrested for individual crimes that had been called the work of the Atlanta Ripper. However, both Henry Huff and Todd Henderson, who were separately held for the murder of Sadie Holly, had been freed. Huff had been acquitted in court on a lack of evidence, and Henderson was released because he'd been held too long without indictment. You'll recall that Henderson had also been suspected of the death of Lena Sharp and the attack on Emma Lou Sharp, who was at the time the only surviving victim of a Ripper attack. And Sadie Hawley's death, for which both men were held but neither convicted, it marked a shift in the Ripper murders, both in terms of escalation of violence and in the apparent signature. Beginning with Sadie Hawley, a number of victims were found without their shoes, Whether that was the work of a serial killer developing his signature or an attempt to copycat, it's impossible to say. At the time, the papers printed every detail of the killings. Nothing was held back to aid an investigation. As we told you in the last episode, Todd Henderson was actually out of jail when the two Ripper-style murders following Sadie Holly's occurred. Both were extremely violent and both victims were missing their shoes. And it's tough to track Todd Henderson. He mostly disappears from the public record after the newspaper The Georgians report of his August 1911 release. No reports ever offer the possibility of his connection to the later cases. Even though, of the two strongest suspects, only Todd Henderson was free during this set of attacks. The extreme violence, the shoe signature. Though the Atlanta Constitution featured a number of articles about a Todd Henderson predating the murders, they were reports of robberies and fights in the late 1890s, we can't conclusively say that they concerned the Ripper suspect. As far as the Atlanta Constitution is concerned, Henderson was not of interest after 1911, and we can't find mention of him on the census or in burial records in Atlanta. 
The Atlanta Ripper murders would continue, but Todd Henderson? Did he move on, die, or stay alive and in the city? There's no telling. Though the Atlanta police would make numerous arrests in 1912 for individual homicides that are considered part of the series, none of these suspects gained the notoriety of either Huff or Henderson. And 1912 was a bloody year. A Constitution article published January 21st, 1912, reported that, quote, For the 15th time in as many months, a woman died from a ghastly wound in her throat. And in February of 1912, a 16th victim, Alice Owens, had been slain in the same manner. Though, in what seems to be more escalation, she was also, quote, mutilated. The Constitution does not include details of what that entailed. That same month, Another Constitution article mentions that a man was successfully prosecuted for the 14th murder in what journalists consider to be the Ripper series, and that would exclude the murders of 1909 and 1910. That article reports that a man named Lucky Elliott was sentenced to life for the murder of a young woman, Ida Ferguson. But the public announcement of his conviction didn't slow down the violence. We weren't able to find any historical sources tying him to any of the previous murders or any indication that law enforcement or the public saw him as the Ripper. Also in February of 1912, a letter arrived, not in Atlanta, but in Gainesville, Georgia. It was from someone who identified himself as, quote, Atlanta's Jack the Ripper. Of all of the historical records surrounding the Atlanta Ripper, This instance feels the closest to the Victorian Jack the Ripper coverage because that Victorian Jack the Ripper or someone impersonating him wrote at least one letter to, to Whitechapel authorities in 1888. London's Jack the Ripper sent along a piece of a human kidney with his missive. So in mid-February of 1912, the Constitution reported that the Gainesville chief of police, who they call only Smith, received a letter postmarked, quote, from Atlanta, a distance of about 55 miles. This letter included no return address. The Constitution reported that it was written in, quote, flaring red ink, quote, by a legible hand, and that the signature was strange. Only the words Jack the Ripper were there, written on the blade of an artistic dagger, the tip of which is colored blood red. The Constitution printed the letter in full. Dear Sir, I will soon visit your city. Undoubtedly, you have heard of my work here in Atlanta. It has not been a consequence of what I will do in Gainesville. You had better prepare for me and see that the Negro women behave. Jack the Ripper. According to the Constitution, Gainesville law enforcement viewed the letter as a prank, but promised that precautions would be taken, quote, against all possible outrages. Our research didn't uncover any Ripper-like murders in the Gainesville area. But the question remains, why send the letter there? There were other areas of Georgia, especially in the counties outside of Atlanta, like Cobb, that are considered the city suburbs today, that would have been better targets for inciting fear. The letter was postmarked in Atlanta, so if it was a Gainesville resident wanting to stir up panic, they'd have to go to some trouble to arrange for the threat to originate over an hour away. 
Why letters weren't sent to the Atlanta police or the Atlanta papers, we don't know. A month later, in March of 1912, a grand jury was convened on the Atlanta Ripper crisis. And after reviewing the deaths of more than a dozen women, this Fulton County grand jury decreed that there was no Atlanta Ripper at all. Remember, a pressure had been mounting everywhere. Criticism of the police, angry letters to the governor, petitions, rewards, protests, and Atlanta's reputation hung in the balance. News of the Atlanta Ripper murders was finally national, and the string of robberies on the north side of town, the white side, had gotten just as much press. So, when the grand jury convened in March of 1912, would it be more prudent to blame a single killer or paint Atlanta as a town of murderers? Or perhaps to imply that the victims had brought death on themselves? Both the Georgian and the Constitution covered the decision, with the Constitution printing the following in the first week of March. The jury declares that after a close study of the cases, it has arrived at the conclusion that each murder was committed by a different man, and that in each case it was the result of jealousy following immoral conduct. In almost every instance, the presentments declare the woman killed was either separated from her husband or was single, at the same time being guilty of immoral conduct, and that it was almost every case the result of revenge following jealousy. One wonders what it would have been like for Emma Lou Sharp, the lone survivor of a ripper attack, to read that opinion. To think of her mother, Lena, who'd apparently committed the immoral conduct of walking on the street in her own neighborhood to go to the grocery market. What it would have been like for any of the families whose mothers, daughters, and sisters had made necessary trips to and from their jobs to buy groceries to survive in a city where even the basic access to utilities was segregated. And neighborhoods that, often enough, didn't have a single one of Atlanta's over 200 streetlights. Whether or not the grand jury found a pattern, Ripper-style murders continued through 1912. There were two more in the spring, with the victims' names appearing in the paper less and less often, and then killing outside the city limits, in what is now the Atlanta suburb of Marietta. That death came in August. An unnamed woman found, quote, beside the seaboard tracks, who'd been, quote, knocked in the head, her trunk slashed with ugly gashes. The article notes that she wore stockings and white slippers, so her shoes weren't taken. It's likely the mutilation of her body that brought about, as the Constitution wrote, quote, ripper theories. If her name was printed in any of the news coverage, we've been unable to uncover it. August of 1912 also brought about what is probably the strangest moment in the Atlanta Ripper investigation— Six months after the Fulton grand jury declared there was no single murderer, the police arrested a man named Lawton Brown. The Constitution headline was blaring. Jack the Ripper believed to be a modern bluebeard with 12 wives. The Daily Enterprise, a smaller paper, went with something simpler. Atlanta Jack Ripper caught and reported that Lawton Brown had apparently confessed to one murder and was suspected of as many as 12 more. In the Constitution, though, the story was far more detailed and bizarre. 
Their first article on Lawton Brown described him as, quote, lanky and, quote, well-dressed with, quote, small, sharp eyes that dart about as if he was in perpetual fear. And their prose gets more purple from that point on. An early 20th century audience would have been familiar with the fairy tale of Bluebeard, a multiple murderer who took one wife after another, killing them for minor transgressions until his home was bursting with bodies. When we first came upon this article, we thought the Constitution was getting unusually creative in their reporting. But no, it turns out that when Atlanta police called Lawton Brown Bluebeard, they meant it literally. He stood accused of at least 12 of the deaths that had occurred in 1911 and 1912. According to two policemen, who the Constitution refers to only as Coker and Hamby, Lawton Brown was brought in, quote, under suspicion and confessed to the murder of Eva Florence, who was killed in November of 1911. Then Brown decided to confess to another 12 murders, and the police said that he'd actually lived with the victims, one after another, before murdering them, as if he had been, quote, married to each. These victims would have included a number of the women whose names appeared on the 1911 petition published by the Reverend Henry Hugh Proctor. Per the Constitution, the Atlanta police surgeon had diagnosed Brown with, quote, some unexplainable mania. The Constitution's retelling of these events is odd. It's only in the second half of the article, which was one of the longest ever published on the Ripper murders, that the order of events and how this claim came to be official theory in the first place is explained, and even then it's still confusing. Lawton Brown made it on to the Atlanta Police Department's radar when his landlord came into the station to report him. The complaint was that Brown had been discussing the murder of Eva Florence and other crimes attributed to the Ripper. Brown's wife, who was also questioned by police, apparently reported that he came home many Saturday nights with bloody clothes, some of which he scrubbed himself, some items he burned. She specifically remembered Brown coming home bloody on the night of Eva Florence's murder, which had happened nearly a year before. There's no discussion of how this information was obtained from Lawton's wife or how willing she was to participate. And she wouldn't be the only wife involved in the case because after his arrest, the APD told reporters that two women had come into the station after his arrest was public. That event is where the Bluebeard story seems to have originated. Per the Constitution, one woman was the wife who'd been questioned by police. But she brought along another woman, only identified as, quote, a young cook worried over Brown's predicament. And they told the desk clerk that they were both married to Lawton Brown. Somehow, this possible bigamy led police to their grand theory that Brown married, they're not specific, but common law is assumed here, his victims and live with them before killing them. Why the wife whom they interviewed would have survived so long, the police didn't say. If he romanced and murdered women one by one, how had she lived with him throughout the killings and been able to report them to police? Whether Lawton Brown killed Eva Florence, we can't be sure. As became evident at his eventual trial, he was living with mental illness, and any analysis is complicated by the description of his confession, which has many of the hallmarks we recognize today as coerced, false, or forced. 
It seems that Lawton Brown confessed to killing Eva Florence in a robbery and that he showed the Atlanta police a knife he had in his possession. But this was after interrogation, and there's no mention of how long that lasted or what methods were used. The police reported that he had provided incredible detail of other murders too, but described them as if from a distance, painting himself as an observer who was a little off from the action, watching them occur. In fact, that description brings to mind the confession of Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., the teenager convicted of ritual murder in the 1990s, better known as one of the West Memphis Three. The description of Brown's shifting story, his observer position, his changing view of the crimes, could coincide with information that might have been fed to him, piece by piece. In August of 1912, Atlanta police declared they'd have, quote, little difficulty in prosecuting Brown for the Atlanta Ripper murders. They painted him as the lone killer that their own grand jury had denied five months before. On August 11th, the Brunswick News, a South Georgia newspaper, reported that, quote, the police believe his story because he related every detail of the crime, end quote, but also that Brown had gone, quote, raving crazy, had had to be locked, quote, in a padded cell. Reportedly, he asked what was done with the mentally ill at Milledgeville, by which he would have meant the state prison. As in the Constitution, the reports of mental illness were used to heighten drama, not to question the veracity of the police's claims. But when Lawton Brown's trial came, there were a number of upsets. And this was a fascinating aspect of each of the trials of the main Ripper suspects, Henry Huff, Todd Henderson, and now Lawton Brown. All three men seemed to have had superior legal representation and a town hungry for a solution to the problem in the Jim Crow South. Under a governor who'd run on a platform of explicit and institutional racism, How this came to be is not clear, but like Henderson and Huff, Brown had a legal team, and they took the city's case apart. In early October of 1912, Lawton Brown's trial began. By the 18th of that month, he was free. According to the Constitution, Brown's apparent, quote, braggadocio, his claims that he had killed Eva Florence, were discussed by his defense. His lawyers claimed that, quote, his mental condition was such that he had been known to do this to gain notoriety, end quote. More telling, though, was the charge that in the interrogation, the Atlanta police had used, quote, the third degree, which is slang for physical coercion or abuse or even torture. Brown was acquitted of all charges. And then, for the third time in as many years, the Atlanta police were without a suspect in many of the murders. Why his wife had come to the police station or how they felt confident in proceeding with the Bluebeard theory was never speculated on in the media. And then, like so many other players in the Ripper saga, Lawton Brown's name disappeared from press coverage. By December of 1912, another two women had died, both violently. And according to the Brunswick News, many attributed their deaths to the Atlanta Ripper. One victim, Maddie Carter, was an independent laundress who lived in Kirkwood, an Atlanta neighborhood that today is filled with $400,000 craftsman homes. She was shot and then, quote, beaten in the head with an axe. And by March of 1913, another three women had been killed. One in particular, Laura Smith, in the manner so prevalent in the 1911 killings. 
head bashed, throat slit. An absolutely scathing May 1913 Constitution article notes that though the Atlanta police had failed to arrest anyone on dozens of murders and robberies that had occurred in the city, they had charged a couple for kissing goodbye near the city train station. The Ripper-style killings would go on through 1913 and 1914, and perhaps beyond. The last murder to receive particular media attention was that of Martha Ruffian, a domestic worker. She was given more column inches than most of the other victims, perhaps the most outside of Emma Lou and Lena Sharp, but it came from the infamy of her former employer rather than any particular empathy on the part of reporters. She had once worked for Mrs. Daisy Opie Grace, a wealthy woman who'd been tried and acquitted of the attempted murder of her husband. Martha Ruffian was, along with her husband, J.C. Ruffian, a key witness at the trial. Apparently, Martha and J.C. Ruffian had separated sometime after the court case, and Martha had been, quote, living off an alley on Ponce de Leon Avenue. According to the Constitution, that's where she was attacked in the manner of the earlier Ripper killings. She was dragged some distance away and her throat was slit. A LaGrange, Georgia newspaper reported that the police had, quote, no suspects in her death, not unless they could tie a new boyfriend named Alex Smith to the crime. That was in August of 1913. And if Martha Ruffian's murder was solved, we haven't been able to find record of it. As we said... Ripper coverage had trailed off in 1913. Murders were still occurring, though not at the pace they had in 1911 or 1912. But the media had simply moved on to other news stories, like the murder of Mary Fagan in April of 1913 and the subsequent trial of Leo Frank in August. Mary Fagan, a child worker at the Atlanta Pencil Company factory, was, has, been made famous in death and the trial, conviction, and eventual lynching of her accused killer, Leo Frank, is still studied in Georgia history classes today. At the time, the case and the trial filled the pages of newspapers all over the country, but nowhere so much as Atlanta. The factory where Mary was found, now converted like so many others in Atlanta into loft apartments, was under Leo Frank's management. Frank was Jewish and from the North, so doubly marked in our city. Mary Fagan disappeared on the same afternoon as the annual Confederate Memorial Parade. Her body was found two days later in the factory cellar. She had been strangled. Along with Leo Frank, the police also suspected Jim Conley, an African-American custodian. Frank was eventually convicted, with Conley testifying at the trial. His lawyers had successfully appealed his death sentence, which was commuted to life in prison. In response, a lynch mob, driven by anti-Semitic fury, broke into the prison. Leo Frank was lynched in August of 1915, and none of the murderers ever faced criminal charges. He was pardoned for, but not exonerated of, the death of Mary Fagan in 1986 by the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles. There are a number of excellent books, long-form articles, and more on this case. We've given you only the barest summary here. But with the focus on the Leo Frank case, there came two important events in the Ripper saga 
lessening press coverage, and a new possible suspect. Somehow, Jim Conley, the custodian at the National Pencil Company, has occasionally been considered the possible answer to the puzzle. A theory that hinges on two things. Him both murdering Mary Fagan in the pencil factory and him killing 20 or more black women in Atlanta between 1909 and 1913. This theory was supported by an accusation that had come up in the trial that if Conley had not killed Mary himself, he'd helped Leo Frank hide her body. Either way, if this theory holds, he was very comfortable with murder. When we interviewed Jeff Wells, author of The Atlanta Ripper, we discussed this with him, including the theory, which is more popular in modern analysis of the case, that Jim Conley was himself the Ripper. We also asked him how the lessening coverage of the case made it difficult to pinpoint an ending point of the Ripper murders. Though reports continued past 1913 and 1914, they were fewer and farther between and presented more like postscripts. As far as the press was concerned, the spree was over. I'm not exactly sure how long these lasted. And I know that sounds like an odd response, given that I have written about it chronologically in the book. But that's because after about 1914, I'm not really sure that most or any of those were part of the Atlanta Ripper uh, phenomenon. So the Atlanta Ripper murders, the coverage of them in the press and the investigation by authorities in Atlanta was derailed by a very tragic event um, on Marietta Avenue in Atlanta at the, at the National Pencil Factory, and that was the murder of 14-year-old Mary Fagan. The murder of Mary Fagan in 1914, a young white girl at the National Pencil Factory at the hands of what they think may have been a New York Jewish man and an African-American accomplice, the Atlanta Ripper, in terms of coverage in the press, didn't stand a chance. Now, as far as another theory as to why it stopped, and this one is harebrained and has been pretty much disproven, is that they caught the Atlanta Ripper and didn't tell us that it was the Atlanta Ripper this conspiracy theory says that the Atlanta Ripper was caught in the form of Joe Conley, who was brought in as a potential uh, assailant in the Mary Fagan murder. And, you know, you get those stories of Joe Conley helping Leo Frank carry the body out and that he was responsible for part of the murder and the rape and all of this other stuff. That has been disproven. There's, there's really no evidence whatsoever to suggest that. And I believe they brought in the Pinkerton Agency to investigate the Mary Fagan murder. And I think they even kind of said, you know, look, we don't, we, we've heard this, but there's really no trails to prove this. So there are some out there that say, well, in 1914, we caught the Atlanta Ripper. His name was Joe Conley. And that's why, but murders went on after that. Do you really think that Joe Conley would have gone to the trouble of trying to help Leo Frank murder a 14-year-old white girl when he kind of had his own gig going on on the side? And another thing, 20-something-year-old black women, 14-year-old white girl, that's a very different, that's different victimology. And a lot of times serial killers don't really jump the fence like that. Very rarely do they change modus operandi like that. And this was done in a way, Mary Fagan was raped and murdered. That was done in the factory. That was done basically in a place where he could very easily be identified and connected to it. He worked there. 
You see what I'm saying? So I don't believe that he had anything to do with the Atlanta Ripper murders, but I can understand why people might have assumed that because he was a tall, slender black man that did fit the description. But do you know how many tall, slender black men there were in Atlanta in 1914? So that's that's a very hard sell. In our research, we can't pinpoint any man presented as a viable suspect after 1912 and the trial of Lawton Brown. Though there were arrests for individual murders that, because of victim, circumstance, or the need to sell newspapers, have been described as Ripper style, someone who could have committed some of the most similar crimes, the ones with the closest modus operandi, he never appeared. We asked Jeff Wells to discuss his thoughts on the biggest question in this story. Who was the Atlanta Ripper? Was there ever a single Ripper at all? And could any of the suspects the police questioned, arrested, or sent to trial have been responsible for the crimes? Probably the million-dollar question here is, was there one killer or were there many? The short answer to that is, I don't know. But there's evidence to suggest that both may be plausible. It's very easy to see that there could have been killings that weren't related, but were also lumped into this grouping. Uh, For example, there were some 1909 murders, and then there were some along the way that could have easily just have been a domestic dispute that ended up very violent. So you do have that. However, there were several suspects, and there were two that stand out, Henry Huff and Todd Henderson. So after getting your question, I began to go back and reread my own book. And last night as I was rereading that section, it just jumped back out at me. And I said, wow, you know, Henderson could easily have been the Ripper or responsible for a number of those murders. Now, you still can't discredit that some of the ones on the periphery. So it doesn't take away from the credibility of those who say there could have been copycats. In criminal justice and in the history of true crime, you also have people out there who are inspired to commit murders because of murders that have already been committed or a crime spree or serial killers. I can't tell you how many people pledged and wrote letters to Charles Manson who said that they wanted to carry on his work or the son of Sam, or the Boston Strangler, these people, there's always people, every serial killer has a fan club. I'm sure Jack the Ripper did too, it's just nobody knew who he was. But, uh, and certainly nobody knows who the Atlanta Ripper was. And I also think that sometimes in some of these murders, you have a husband who is ready to get rid of the wife and said, well, this is a perfect time to do it. And we can just blame it on the Ripper. In Jeff Wells' view, the last murder of the Ripper series might very well be the death of Mary Rowland, who was killed in July of 1914. As in many of the other cases, she was attacked on the weekend, a Saturday night. The Constitution reported that her throat was slit and her body, quote, slashed in several places. Police eventually made an arrest in this case, a man named Henry Harper, and their main evidence seemed to be that he wore the right size shoes to match a footprint found at the crime scene. If he was convicted, neither Wells nor our research team found evidence of it, and there's no mention of him being questioned in the earlier unsolved cases. 
The only other media coverage of note concerns what was likely a prank, which came in March of 1914. There were a series of notes left around the city of Atlanta. According to the Constitution, they were, quote, pinned to fireboxes, which were fire alarms that were staggered through the town so that citizens could send up an alert in case of a blaze. On March 12th, three of those alarms went off in short succession. The fire chief himself responded to the third, and there he found a note pinned to the firebox, signed Jack the Ripper. This note promising violence against Black women, as well as, quote, pawnbrokers, idlers, and women of the streets. The letter's author, whoever he was, then imposed a curfew. In many ways, the specificity of this particular note felt more like the demands of the Axemen of New Orleans, a murderer who targeted Italian immigrants in Louisiana and famously demanded that jazz be played throughout the city. But those New Orleans attacks and letters would not come until 1918, four years after the Ripper note was found on the firebox. Whoever wrote the Atlanta firebox notes, they found their inspiration closer to home or farther a sea. Atlanta officials told the Constitution that they suspected there had actually been notes left at each of the three alarms, but that the other two had been blown away by the wind. After that, the Atlanta Ripper is mostly summoned up in the press to describe a particularly gruesome death, sometimes even hours outside of Atlanta, and as late into the 20th century as 1924. That's not a satisfying ending. We told you in previous episodes that some of the murders have been solved, or so police said, with the suspects sometimes acquitted or sentenced or let go for lack of proof. The sentences for the cases that did make it to conviction seem wildly random. A few years here, a life sentence there. Moving into the wave of the Great Migration and the more prosperous but still repressive 1920s, Black Atlanta had few answers. And it seems fair to say, little trust in the ability of the city to protect them. City officials couldn't tell why the crime spree had died down, much less who or what might have been the cause. When we spoke to Jeff Wells, we asked him whether he had any ideas as to why the killings had ceased, particularly if a number of them were indeed attributable to one man. Now, if you go back and look at what generally brings a natural end to a murdering spree or a serial killer's run or rampage, criminologists tell us a number of things. They tell us they get tired of the work, and I hate to even call it the work, but they get tired of that. It it begins to get old to them. If they're not caught, if they don't get caught, here's the thing. You You can't be identified because you'll get caught, you see, and you don't want to get caught, but you have to continue the murdering spree, but you don't want to get caught. Well, if you're not getting the press coverage and these murders are not getting the uh, the attention that they need to get or deserve to get, then your work may be all for naught if you are a press, if you you know, a, a, a press hound, attention seeker. The other thing is, of course, naturally, the person who was involved in this could have died um, or the person who was involved in this could have been injured or gotten sick to a point where he could not get around on the streets of Atlanta very effectively. Um, let's say, for example, let's go back to the uh, Emma Lou Sharp and Lena Sharp episodes. All right, so Emma Lou Sharp said that this guy came up to her, was a tall, slender African-American man. 
when he attempted to do the deed to Emma Lou, he was unsuccessful because she threw a fit, basically, and defended herself, screamed. and all. Well, that, if you read the narrative, you see that it drew attention. Now, imagine if the gentleman who came to the door to investigate had caught this guy. Okay, then it's over. It's over for him whether he's the Ripper or not. Okay. Um, the second thing is, imagine if he hadn't been able to get away very quickly. Okay. So in order to do these things, you do have to kind of have a little bit of physical prowess to overcome your victim and then possibly get away if someone, you know, pours in on you or focuses in or you're noticed. If you get someone like Emma Lou Sharp, who screams at the top of her lungs and fights back, puts up a fight, then you might be outmatched given the context here of the victim and her surroundings. So a broken leg, you know, a lung problem, a respiratory problem, heart problems, those kind of things, cancer, you know, a number of those things could have stopped the Ripper. We just don't know. And the sad part of this is that other than Henderson and Huff, we don't have any real viable suspects. The short answer, I don't know why he stopped. I don't know if he stopped or if he was stopped. The long answer was what you got. And the medium answer is if there were more than one, then maybe this one stopped and others continued to copycat or participate on the periphery. Maybe if there were a thousand amateur sleuths working on the Atlanta Ripper cases, as they have and do on Jack the Ripper, perhaps we might have more. How many killers there were. If the murders with so much in common, the missing shoes, the mutilations were truly related. If any of the suspects might have, with proper investigation at the time, been held to account. We might even have the names for all the murdered women who gradually became labeled by their victim numbers rather than their names. Of all the men discussed in this series, we find Todd Henderson to be the subject most worthy of more study. That he was charged with Sadie Holly's murder and let go just before the next two murders, the ones that most resembled hers, we keep coming back to that. But maybe we'll never know. The Atlanta Ripper killed Black women in America. And whether it's 1910 or 2020, those cases get less column space, fewer web detectives devoted to gathering information on crimes, less of a chance now or in a hundred years of reflection and study of being solved. If you're interested in learning more about the case, we strongly suggest that you pick up Jeff Wells' book, The Atlanta Ripper. Our research took different paths than his, and there's plenty more in his coverage for you to learn. Special thanks go out to Jeff, who was kind enough to sit down for an interview and share his thoughts with us. He's covered more Georgia cases on his blog, which we've linked in the show notes. We hope you'll check it out. There's some other links, too, in case you haven't read or learned about the historical figures who opened up each episode in this series. W.E.B. Du Bois... Georgia Daniel Johnson, and Jefferson Franklin Long. Long's political history is particularly fascinating. During his time in the U.S. House of Representatives, he gave a speech warning against allowing former Confederate members to be exempted from swearing on the Constitution. He represented Georgia's 4th District. He was the second Black representative sworn into the House and the first from Georgia. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, 
leave us reviews, or to support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks, as always, to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line's created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. The chief researcher for this series is Shannon Geary, who spent last summer immersed in the Atlanta News Archives, and she did an amazing job. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Special thanks to Dion Clark of The Sage Podcast for reading the quote at the opening of each episode. You can hear more from Dion on the newly launched Sage Podcast, which is, quote, devoted to critical conversations on literature by and about Black women. Be sure to check it out. And voice acting was provided by Alvin Williams of the Affirmative Murder Podcast. Alvin and Fran host a true crime comedy podcast that, according to their description, quote, tries to bring equality to true crime in its own weird way. We've provided a link in our show notes to their podcast. Be sure to check it out. We also featured the voice of our friend Josh Hallmark, host of the popular podcast, True Crime Bullshit. If you're not listening and you love a deep dive, remedy that by checking his show out. Be sure to follow The Fall Line on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to follow our network exactly right, too.